This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is Preg Your Pardon's favorite podcast growth and distribution platform. And the best part, it's free. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, maybe you should consider Anchor. If you're interested, you can download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, you can download that free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, PYP listeners. This is Gailey McDougall. Welcome back. So today's episode is actually part two of a two-part conversation with Samantha Jones about informed decision-making. If you haven't already, please go back and listen to the first part so you'll be all caught up to speed because we're going to jump right into the conversation. So without further ado, let's talk about informed decision-making. You know, we can talk about benefits, risks, and... Mm -hmm. Alternatives, those are easy. Then intuition gets a little trickier. Mm -hmm. And then the doing nothing is really hard to yeah. have that conversation. And and so, um, and it, I think it also kind of just gets skipped over a lot too. Because in a way, you're kind of going back to risks and benefits. I can give an example of this. This could be a really long example. I'm not going to make it that. But I was faced with a decision like that. Um, in between my oldest two children, I had a 14-week loss and missed AB. Mm. So I didn't start symptoms or anything. I had a little bit of spotting. Um, but I knew mm -hmm. um, just by the way I felt, you know, if you've been pregnant, that would make more sense than if you have not. But um, And so on a certain occasion, and it was actually the, the night of my son's second birthday party, um, I took myself, went to Centennial um, to the women's hospital for an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. uh, we hadn't been able to hear a heart rate. I was with Kathy at that time, and mm -hmm. um, that wasn't that unusual at nine weeks, but on me it kind of was. And, you know, we just kind of looked at each other in that way that only Kathy can look at you mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have a conversation without one. speaking. But um, when I went in, there was no heartbeat, and there was a there was a smaller sack. It was unclear um, whether it was a bladed ovum or a long-term missed AB, and that— Distinction turned out later to be important. Um, and the midwife there rightfully gave the opportunity um, to make a neutral decision right now. Mm -hmm. There's nothing going on. And I might have easily moved into, you know, an active miscarriage of that baby. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I understood the risks and the benefits, the advantages. Mm -hmm. I understood the alternatives. Right. I could have taken Cytotec and been done. I could have gone in for a DNC. Yeah. Um, and I chose to wait. And mm -hmm. and I wouldn't, I don't um, question that or look back and, you know, feel like it was wrong decision. It was just that all decisions have potential risk. And what wound up happening was I moved very quickly from that status to about 48 hours later, um, there was infection, okay. which couldn't have been known. I had normal blood work, sure. no fever. Yeah. I had a fever that day. Um, and a, a massive hemorrhage because of the infection. Mm -hmm. And then I was stuck in a situation where I was out of town. I didn't have good access to OB care. It was an mm -hmm. emergency room. And long story short, it was, it, it escalated into an unnecessarily high-risk situation. So I could have mm -hmm. had a DNC two nights ago. Mm -hmm. But I also didn't need an anesthesia and a surgery because there was an excellent chance, probably 80% chance, that I would pass this pregnancy naturally, right. given the time. Or if 
things started to change, made a different decision. So it's just an example yeah. that a, a decision of neutrality was probably appropriate. And I was one of the few that experienced a higher risk situation, but I still think that all the providers made the right call. They gave me a choice. I, I made it. Um, the consequences were that I, uh, you know, wound up in the ICU with a couple units of blood and pretty sick and shaky for a long time and mm-hmm. recovered. Just mm-hmm. one of the things that we know can happen. Right. So that was an example of autonomy. I was given that and I have to accept, you know, the choice that was made and yeah. and all of that. But So and that's a perfect segue into my next question. Um, because you knew the benefits, you knew the risks. Um even though the risks were minimal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you knew that they were there. You knew that they existed. Yeah. And you chose at that point to do nothing, which was a decision. Mm-hmm. And then the risks that were minimal ended up being 100% real they applied to me. Mm-hmm. And so then your whole scenario, your whole situation changed and your decision-making, the, the way that you made decisions at that point changed too, because you didn't have the luxury of time. Right. Um, and so with that whole process, the first time that you went in and you had time, and then the second time, you, you had autonomy to make those decisions both, both times. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about autonomy because, um, Obviously, in our profession, we uh, autonomy is kind of what our whole model is built around, and the way that midwifery care is accessed and delivered and all of that has a lot to do with autonomy for the provider and the patient, to be quite honest. But um, I feel like the word autonomy has kind of become a household word, especially in the last couple of years since the pandemic. Yes, I think um, so. Started hearing a lot of people talk about autonomy that I had never heard that word come out of their mouth before ever. So can you talk a little bit about autonomy, what autonomy means, and then in the context of informed decision-making? Sure. Autonomy is a, uh, an, an ethical construct okay. um, that is really defined as your ability, your volition to make a decision for your own self without anybody else being able to encroach on that. Um, uh, It is a a freedom in a sense, Mm -hmm. um, but really it's an ethical construct about um, being free to do things, avoid things, make decisions, participate in um, uh, your your care, decision-making in a way that you believe benefits you. Um, that's not actually in the definition. It's kind of assumed that that's what somebody would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but that autonomy is about that freedom and the volition that we have to do that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So there are people that, you know, they can't actively participate in that autonomy. And so somebody needs to advocate for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and our babies are an example mm-hmm. of that. Um, but the mother is acting with autonomy mm-hmm. as far as, what she can and can't do with her body. Mm-hmm. And when you said beneficial to the person, <clears throat> um, I guess I kind of want to just break that down a little bit because sometimes we make decisions that maybe they're just beneficial for comfort mm-hmm. or for pleasure. Yeah. But we have the autonomy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not any different than 
whether or not someone wants to drink an alcoholic beverage or participate in recreational substances that give them comfort and pleasure, mm-hmm. um, or whether someone wants to receive anesthesia right. to not have to feel the pain of a contraction. Right. So it does get real spider webby mm-hmm. when we're talking about autonomy when it comes down to two people. Right. sharing the same body again. That's, you know, it gets a little tricky there. So, because um, I feel like right now, the conversations that I'm hearing at least are, again, they're very divisive. They're very two-sided. There's polarity about autonomy and freedom and especially medical freedom. Yes, absolutely. And that's where autonomy is, is you know, is, is kind of being... Um, Hijacked may be too strong of a word, but I feel like that we're, we're, we're using words that have always been part of our informed decision-making process now in ways to propagate agendas. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that the healthcare system is immune to that. I mean, Absolutely we, we, not. We, it's probably only just um, been a platform to reveal it in a lot of other ways. And mm-hmm. it's not just pregnancy, obviously. We've seen it with COVID, and you're a family nurse practitioner, so you've seen it probably throughout the whole lifespan, I would, <laughs> so I would assume. So much. And, and definitely a, a sharp ramping upward of that conversation here in the past few years, uh, just like you said. And it, and it tends to conflict with a lot of people consider autonomy to be the only thing. There are many ethical principles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, different, you know, mm-hmm. when you look at different sources, five or seven, you know, what I was originally taught that's been um, uh, abridged a little bit, but there's an ethical principle called beneficence. And that's kind of what we're competing against with a baby. Mm-hmm. Right. Baby doesn't have autonomy, so to speak, because they don't have, cognitively have the ability to make those decisions. But the principle that that baby has a right to beneficial treatment, beneficence, um, could be in conflict with the autonomy of the mother carrying mm-hmm. him or her. Mm-hmm. Um, that gets really dicey, and mm-hmm. we, you know, it's been it's been a conversation forever, but there's not a lot of really clear cut answers. Autonomy has a tendency to compete. Um, with even other people's autonomy. Yeah. Because well, when, when you're looking at your autonomy and my autonomy, I can't for a minute believe that my freedom to make personal decisions um, can interfere with yours because that means that somebody else's can interfere with mine. Mm-hmm. And then I'm saying, well, I'm autonomous. I can't, I won't allow that. Mm-hmm. So at some point we have to recognize that autonomy among people, between people, meets up. Mm-hmm. The, sure. the common phrase, you know, the, the joking way that we identify that is that my autonomy to, to put my fist forward ends where it meets your face. Mm. And that's cute and all, mm-hmm. but boy, is it really true. Yeah. Yeah. Because if we only recognize autonomy, freedom at all costs, to interfere with other people's autonomy, mm-hmm. we're not recognizing the ethical principle the way it was intended. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm probably aging myself, but I remember when you could smoke in a restaurant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In a plane. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and so now, of course, a lot of, you know, like my my children are like, what? That's, 
that's ridiculous. You how know, could how anybody could anybody be allowed to do that? How could you do that? You're yep. not you're being able to see out my car window because both yeah. my parents were smoking. Yeah, and putting mm-hmm. other people's health at risk by blowing smoke in their face while they're eating yes. a meal. So, um, so we've we've definitely seen places in our society that that we've accepted and adopted those those lines of autonomy. Mm-hmm. We're not real mad about that. Maybe some people are, but um, I think the majority of us understand that that's a reasonable request, not just not to smoke yeah. next to the person that's eating. But do you remember the uproar about it when it started? I do. That's interesting. I do. Yeah, <laughs> part of this. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah. So anyway, this 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 part of the conversation again, I think um, probably just needs to be an ongoing conversation. Yeah, we're not going to like have some kind of we're not going to figure it out. I mean, we might if we sit here long enough. But. Right, right. But probably <laughs> not before this probably recording. Probably not is. before the end of the podcast. So, um, right. yeah. So I just, I kind of just wanted to talk about that in yeah. the context of informed decision making because I think it's a really important topic that yeah. we're hearing about, but out of context a lot. And I so agree. I think it makes a lot of sense here. I agree. Um, but you also you touched on. I can't remember what you said earlier, but it 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 made me want to ask: Have you seen a shift of even just in the last few years? Or I mean, you've been practicing long enough to where I'm just wondering if if you've seen shifts um, as far as just conversations around informed decision making and autonomy, yeah. and what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely, I have. Um, you know, in the community in which I work, autonomy and informed decision making and kind of a going against the grain um, has been a, a, a principle that's not unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I have seen a shift more recently where there, there is a greater focus mm-hmm. on, you know, just kind of the squirming fear that there's more threat to me being able to do as I please. There's more threat to my freedom to act. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a reality. We do see that in times of a communal crisis. It's not the first time the world has seen this. For a lot of people, um, I don't hear a lot of people understanding that we have seen similar crises, but because we didn't experience them and live through them, we don't recognize the similarity. Mm-hmm. Um, other cultures have experienced crises like this even more recently, but we don't necessarily understand what that's like until we're right there in it, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a fear among people of loss of freedom, mm-hmm. loss of autonomy um, that comes along with any time uh, there's a, a collective universal threat like a pandemic mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And so you watch people go through almost what's, I mean, what would be recognized as the stages of grief. They're angry, they're in denial. Mm-hmm. Once they can't, you know, anymore say, well, this doesn't, this can't apply to me, I refuse. They say, well, it's not real. Um, and you see a shift in people's response if it touches their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really, you know, humanly speaking, um, we should be open to recognizing devastating things that are touching other people's lives. Uh, before they touch ours, but mm-hmm. that's a very common way of, of uh, responding to things. Um, and that look at autonomy versus beneficence mm-hmm. is critical here mm-hmm. because 
we do have personal freedoms. I care about that. That's that's important. You know, when it, when I think about my myself or my own children or husband, um, and really assessing benefits and risks and doing health things that may be a little different than what the the mainstream does. You, that's definitely us. You sure. know, I know you know that I, we were in that community before it was cool. Right. right. Um, <laughs> before before it was so well understood, I would say. Yeah. Um, for the sake of of um, our best good, mm-hmm. e- even individually, mm-hmm. for the sake of being genuinely concerned about this actual risk, this actual threat, mm-hmm. not for the sake of being able to do what we want, no matter what it means mm-hmm. for us or anyone else. Mm-hmm. Because I ethically and morally do believe that we've got to consider the beneficence of other people, part of our human community, um, as well as our own autonomy to make decisions. And sure. that sometimes those conflict with each other. And this is another thing that isn't going to be solved today. Right. And it's extremely complex. And I don't disregard the concerns or fears of any parties involved in this and the way they've thought about their, uh, or been concerned about this idea of, you can't make me do this. Mm-hmm. Um, or I, we do, where there's risk, there must be choice. Mm-hmm. I get that. I do mm-hmm. understand it, and I do yeah. believe in that. Um, but I think that as a community, we also need to be very careful that we're assessing all the risks, right. that we're recognizing the aspects of our personal behaviors and how they can cause harm mm-hmm. to others. Yeah, cannot be ignored because no. we have violated autonomy. Yeah. We've we've encroached on other people's autonomy. I I can you know speak a bit to that in reference to the pandemic. And again, this is you and I could do. 60 hours at a time and never be done. Um, But just to briefly address part of this pandemic, not even six months of it, but to me, it was an enormous part at the, at the kind of height of Mm -hmm. um, the the bad outcomes that we were experiencing. Um, My mom moved home with us after a diagnosis of cancer. She lived there for just shy of six months before she died. Mm -hmm. She was compromised, extraordinarily high risk effusions in her lungs, chemotherapy, you know, immune response, um, compromised respiratorily. She was everything that can't be in contact with this. And as a provider, I'm just a human. I had to navigate the needs of my patients, their autonomy to mer- make decisions about mm-hmm. this illness, whether or not they chose to be tested, you know, whether or not they um, did or did not choose to have themselves vaccinated, all of the aspects that are that need to be part of the conversation, right. um, along with the aspects of being a full-time caregiver for a compromised person who, here's this word again, we knew would die. Right. Not at the, we knew she was going to die anyway. Right. We knew that. We had a, um, a, a, a prognosis and all, the, there was no doubt in this situation. Right. But to move through the stages of that at a, rate that could be accepted, what, you know, people like you and what you went through would have hoped for. Right. Hospice care, time to comprehend what was happening, comfort measures, all the things that, death is never ideal, but that you would hope for a person that you love Mm -hmm. versus a, you know, a two-day horrible fight for breath. I was not going to introduce that risk. Right. And trying to live in, you know, where people's autonomy that they perceived to be in my presence or purchase care from me and place me at risk interfered with the ethical principle of 
my responsibility to protect another human being's life mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, brought a lot of this to the surface. Yeah. Um, autonomy stops where it harms others. They're no longer talking about autonomy, but but rather, you know, a, a, a cult-like worship of freedom at all costs. Yeah. It's anarchy. Yeah. yeah. Well, years ago, and I don't even remember what she was speaking about, um, I just, I, I remember, so there's, there's a researcher, a local researcher that we both know. Um, a lot of people know her nationally, but in our in our area, Dr. Jesse Hawkins is a very credible resource for so much valuable information. But anyway, so years ago, I was watching a webinar she was doing on something, and she just made this comment about. Um, and I also knew her personally in mm-hmm. a lot of like natural health worlds and, you know, a lot of our social circles were the same um, as far as like professionally and personally. Um, so I knew her. I knew how she lived her life personally. I knew some of the choices that she made weren't always like super conventional and traditional. Mm-hmm. But this this webinar that she was talking about, she just made this comment about, well, we have to we have to remember when we're making decisions that community health guidelines are there for one reason and personal health guidelines are there for another reason. And mm-hmm. if we're going to be part of a community, mm-hmm. we have to decide if we're going to participate in those community guidelines and still figure out how to navigate our personal guidelines. Yeah. And for whatever reason, that wasn't something that I tucked away in a filing cabinet. I, it's been in the forefront of my brain for a long time. And I think about that all the time. So yeah. then when the pandemic happened and we had these like binary rhetoric buzz phrases and all these conversations about like, you have to do this community thing. No, you have to do this personal thing. Why aren't we talking about the root cause of this? And, and my brain kept going, okay, two things came up. First of all, yes, it's really important to understand how to strengthen and support your immune system. 100% get that. Let's do that. But also, let's stop the hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. Like, this is an acute issue. Mm -hmm. We don't Mm -hmm. treat acute issues by trying to figure out what the root cause of it is. We don't have the luxury of that. That's exactly right. And what an important distinction. I saw... And, you know, I'm naturally not going to name any names, but I I saw an uprising of a little bit of that shaming behavior that that happens in settings like that, where we started to actually almost assign value to the lives of people who acted in a certain way Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. those that didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, the way they eat, the way they nourish themselves. You and I, you know that I have always, in all my years of practice and before, and in my own home, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where there'd be, you know, people <laughs> in my my own family, my children's family, um, I think found it a little comical and made that very, very clear over the years um, that I could be a little bit militant about the idea that nu- nutrition, yeah. supplementation, health, immune support um, is critical. Critical. And and I believe in that. And I never changed. I never stopped believing in that. But like you said, yeah. first of all, that's me. Yeah. And second of all, it isn't so simple as our lifestyle choices and our immune support choices being the only factors that can predict the mortality of an acute global crisis. Absolutely I had people not, ask, yeah. you know, ask questions like that and and uh, you know, 
with clear judgment, like, oh, why'd your dad get so sick? Did he did he get the vaccine and, and it wasn't good enough for him or mm-hmm. because it doesn't work at all? Or did mm-hmm. he did he choose not to? And, and if that's the case, then what you know, why does it matter to you? Well, people mm-hmm. didn't know any anything mm-hmm. about any of that. His particular circumstances are that he's a he's a cancer patient mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he doesn't have chemotherapy because that's not appropriate in a situation. Mm-hmm. COVID's not really looking for a suppressed immune system. Always, that's right. not the only thing. Sure. Um, <clears throat> his immune system was jacked up with a uh, an ICI family of drugs. Mm-hmm. He took Keytruda mm-hmm. IV uh, for his cancer, his melanoma, um, and uh, the ICI stands for immune checkpoint inhibitor. Mm-hmm. So just think through what that means. You pull on all the stops and let your immune system go bonkers. And it doesn't stop the inflammation and the, the response that it's extremely effective against certain types of cancer at certain stages. Mm-hmm. But in this situation, it was the hyperdrive of the immune system, not the absence of the response, um, that almost cost him his life. Mm-hmm. My dad's 82 years old. He was on a vent. He spent nearly 50 days hospitalized. He was wheelchair-bound. Some people don't think that's super unusual at his age, but he drove the day before he was admitted. Mm. It absolutely changed his life here uh, almost a year later. Mm -hmm. But there's so many unknowns in that story and why his response was like that. I had patients who had minor congenital, you know, um, uh, organ deficiency of some type, nothing Mm -hmm. that really interfered with their lives, but um, that cost them their lives because Mm -hmm. of COVID. A lot Mm -hmm. younger and different circumstances than my dad. These are just examples. But yeah, all and of I, the mortality stats are examples of human beings who died for reasons that you and I don't even know. Right. But it and wasn't about their vitamin D levels always. No, no. And you know, and I think that that's the that's the part that I kept seeing be missed mm-hmm. um, was the fact that, you know, there was just so much that we didn't know, and we didn't have the luxury of time yeah. to try to figure out the yeah. root cause and the root cures and, yeah. and all the things. We yeah. just had to stop the bleeding. Yeah, that'll happen so, with time, but yeah. Sure, and and so I, I think that those of us who were sort of, like you said, you know, we kind of had our, our feet in, in two worlds of like— Yes, we absolutely believe that nutrition is like one of the foundational pillars of health, especially yeah. chronic long-term health. Absolutely. But when you're talking about an acute issue that may and quite possibly will lead to death, that's a hemorrhage situation. If somebody is bleeding to death after childbirth on their bathroom floor, I'm mm-hmm. not going to pull up their labs and try to figure out why their ferritin was low and I ask recommend them that they eat more beef. How much? Yeah. That's not what the conversation we're going right. to have. Yeah. We're going to intervene and I'm going to use all the tools I have at my disposal to intervene to stop the bleeding yeah. so that we can at a later time address the root cause. All of those same things being talked the exact about same things. will be addressed and have been addressed. But you have right. to still be alive and breathing yeah. to have a conversation about what can we do to improve on this situation. Right. And so then yeah. it circles back again to informed consent. Because I, I think a lot of a lot of what was missing was not informed decision making. It was emotional decision making. And it was based on biases and conditioning and yeah. quite frankly fear. The, yeah. A lot of the rhetoric that I was hearing about not living in fear were the same people in my office paralyzed with fear. Most fearful. They just didn't address, which thing am I afraid of? <laughs> right, right. And so, again, it wasn't intuition. It was fear. It was, you know, and so yeah. 
I think conversations like this that can maybe help people sort of maybe be aware of their own biases and even frame up like where in their lives have they not been able to apply informed decision making um, honestly could maybe help the next time or the next situation because eventually, you know, you won't have the luxury of being able to not believe in something like a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it will affect your family. And it may be on a Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock when you never expected to get a call from your son's coworker saying that he had just had a massive stroke. Yeah. Or in your case, it may be, you know, a Wednesday afternoon driving home and realizing that the labs that your mom's provider just got back are are not, not okay. what she wanted. And so eventually yeah. it will you will stand right face to face with something that you don't have the luxury to deny and you'll yes. need to use informed decision making in order to navigate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And everything has to be on the table in order to do that. Yeah. I had I, I witnessed people make that transition as their lives were touched. Where I saw it happen was they that we had um I saw many people or heard from many people that were dedicated to their beliefs on the issue, um, wherever they might have been coming from. It can be a news source. It can be friends. It can be their own smaller sects of a community saying, this is the way it is. This is the way it's not. Until they couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. And as the on-call provider, fielding that, mm-hmm. the shift in what am I more afraid of now um, was stark, and it there there was not a hint of I told you, mm-hmm. you don't feel that you're mm-hmm. genuinely. I was genuinely fearful for some of these people, and it turned out sadly for um, more than I wished to share mm-hmm. uh, for good reason mm-hmm. um, that they were not going to be okay. Um, but it took that to recognize that, and and the and the decisions, several decisions had already been made without the information. Mm -hmm. And then you add the extra element of, well, we're talking about the informed consent. We had an epidemic of misinformation coming down through where people believed that they were informed, Mm -hmm. that they were in the know and everyone else was not. And they believed the things that they heard, the things that were presented to them from what they believed were trustworthy sources um, that didn't turn out to be that way. So, and, and this actually just reminded me of another question that that I wanted to touch on and see if I can um, frame this up eloquently. <laughs> so, when you're talking about, um, and in the example that you just used, we were talking, of course, about um, a pandemic and COVID and um, a virus that we didn't really have a lot of information about. And then the information right. that we did have was being utilized um, maliciously and m- with misinformation. And, and, and so that reminds me of another aspect of informed decision-making. It doesn't always look like a provider walking in the room saying, hey, I think that we need to do this XYZ intervention. Do you consent or do you refuse this? Sometimes the absence of the intervention um, being offered. So as a provider, if I know something exists that I don't, I don't offer as an option. Yes. Um, that aspect is just as dangerous as offering an intervention that may not be necessary in a way that's coercive. 
So I'm still not eloquently asking this question, but to be really blunt, there are uh, situations, scenarios, um, we'll just stay in the birth lane, Mm -hmm. where a family may hire a provider who may attend to their pregnancy and their birth in a way that meets all of their perceived desires for their birth, what that may look like, what the pictures may look like, what the birth space may look like, all of the things the provider may not be able to, either legally or skill set wise, offer certain interventions. And so that information is being withheld. Mm-hmm. So yes. that's that's still... That's still not informed decision making. Still a failure of informed consent. Even if somebody feels like, oh, I'm, I am, say they don't even hire a provider and they have a birth completely on their own, or they hire somebody to to be there with them, maybe in just a supportive role, mm-hmm. um, and they feel like they're doing that because they want to maintain their autonomy. Yeah, but there is a lot of information that is not being given to them, and then if there's an outcome that is not a desirable outcome, and you look back at that, withholding that information for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a participating factor. It feels just as as malicious and dangerous as offering an intervention for not the right reasons. Right. Um, if I'm a provider and I, and I can't do a certain intervention, so I just don't mention it, that that's maybe something that could help you in this situation. You know, maybe yeah. you're... Yeah. Maybe the it's a positional can't be issue. Ex- or, expected to know that if it's not shared by the provider, that is right. one of our responsibilities. I mean, if somebody is severely dehydrated during their labor, for instance, and they're with a provider who either does not know how to start an IV, does not have the scope to start an IV, does not have the resources to carry IV fluids, yeah. or know how to start an IV, um, and that delivery goes a certain way. And it could have gone a different way, yeah. just with a little bit of fluids. Right. But that intervention was never offered. How is that? How is that any different than you know than an intervention being offered that's coercive? Right. It's not withholding it's, information. Yet our emotional response to that is somewhat different because we're we're conditioned to recognize what we think is a. Um, Injustice in the on the part of the traditional provider, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that happens for very good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that we. Uh, you're absolutely right. That doesn't that doesn't mean that it's. It's like we're doing the same thing under, a, but calling it something else, and sure. we don't recognize it as being the same. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is probably a whole different podcast. Because I think that we have covered this from every angle. I feel like it's been very I think we can go down a few extra roads, but we've covered it from a lot of different angles. So anything that I um, I didn't hit on or um, that you want to add? I think it was a very complete round introduction at least to a, a, a topic that could never be covered in, in, a, in a single uh, a single take but deserves so much attention and just to introduce the idea for, yeah. for people to think more about it yeah. and maybe ask more about it when they establish their own care 
uh, is, is a really great idea. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for being here and chatting with me really about anything, but especially. Thanks for inviting me to do this. <laughs> I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, if you ask, I might just come back again. <laughs> All right. We're going to hold her to it. All right. Okay. Preg, your pardon listeners. That's it for today. Be safe and be well and be kinder than necessary. Bye.